This is Echozoi Radio, episode 160 for August 2021 with Gene Clyatt on the Early English Reformation. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 160 for August 2021 with Gene Clyatt. Gene is affectionately known as the Shinar Squirrel, which is how you'll find him on social media. He was pastor of Parkside Baptist Church, which he describes as being in the middle of nowhere, Montana, for 15 years. and still does occasional itinerant preaching. He also hosts a podcast called Squirrel Chatter. Gene joins me to discuss the early English Reformation, focusing heavily on Thomas Cranmer. The episode goes a little bit longer than usual, but please, if you will, please stick through it. It's very interesting history. I'm learning right along with you as Gene explains it here in this episode. Show notes for this episode are available at echozoe.com slash 160. Now, I don't often bring up ministry fundraising, but I'd like to just touch on it briefly. A lot of ministries do Uh, end of year fundraising drives. And I don't really like to jump on while everybody else is also asking for money. If you would, please consider supporting Echozoe Ministries. And if you're in the United States, your your donation is tax deductible and every donation is greatly appreciated. If 60 people each donated just $10, all regular ministry expenses for 2021 would be completely donor supported. And In addition to covering expenses, I actually really love lots of little donations over and above a few big ones. It's the strongest positive feedback mechanism that I can ask for. So this will be the only time that I ask for money in 2021. And if you're so inclined, the easiest way to donate is via echozoe.com slash donate or directly through PayPal with paypal.me slash echozoe. Currently, PayPal or mail check is the easiest, but we are looking into other options for the future, including possibly Dan Bongino's new Align Pay. I haven't really looked into it at much at all, but um, I, I like the idea of something PayPal-like that doesn't have PayPal's catch and uh, their uh, strings attached to it. Another option is maybe a locals page. Uh, let me know what you'd think about an Echozoidoc, uh locals page. Echo, it would something like echozoe.locals.com. It would be a little kind of, if you're not familiar with locals, it'd be kind of a little sheltered social media type page. They're meant to compete most directly with uh, Patreon, but the pages end up being a little bit more like a Facebook page. If I did it, it would be somewhere between the minimum that they allow of $2 a month and up to the more typical $5 a month. Most pages on locals are $5 a month. That subscription would help with ministry expenses. And in return, you get a friendly little place for discussion that's free of the typical big big tech censorship. 
I'm very much undecided on whether I'd want to do locals, but if you're familiar with locals and would be supportive of doing an Equizoe page, please let me know. Thanks for enduring 2021's fundraising spiel. And with that, here's my discussion with Gene. Well, Gene, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. It's been a while. We've been in this, it's running in the same circles online for quite a while, but it's a pleasure to finally have you on the show and to chat with you about early English Reformation today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with? Something, something totally off the wall that very few of us ever talk about, the early English Reformation. Yeah, like I said, I love church history. I love Reformation history. I'm really weak on English stuff, so I'm going to be learning right along with uh, those who are listening in. Well, I said people say you're you're big in the English Reformation. Like, yeah, cause, yeah. Why does an American Baptist guy in Montana care about the English Reformation? Uh, and and the reason is that it's from the Anglican Church, which is of course the result of the English Reformation, that the Puritans, the Congregationalists, and the Baptists come from. So this is our history, and I think uh, when we we look back at it. Uh, you go to a wedding and you hear, dearly beloved, we're gathered here today in the sight of God in the face of this congregation to join in holy matrimony, this man and this woman. Where did those words come from? Archbishop Thomas Cranmer and the early English Reformation. Go to a funeral, you know, same mm-hmm. thing. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. What? The Book of Common Prayer, Archbishop Cranmer. I've already so, learned something. You know, this is, this is stuff that we all, you know, I'm getting ready to do it next weekend. I'm doing a wedding of my nephew, uh, and you know, we're pretty much doing the straight book of common prayer wedding. Cool. Cause you know, that's the, right. That's the, I, I wrote my premarital counseling around the book of common prayer wedding. Wow going through the ceremony, going through the vows, what do they mean? What are their biblical origins? Where do the, each of these clauses come from out of the Bible? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where we, you know, we've been meeting and going through all that for the last couple of months, getting ready for the wedding with he and, he and his bride. And okay. so that's, and that's one of the things I, I told him straight up. I don't let people write their own vows. You've never been married before. You don't know what to promise each other. That's, that's wise. And so these are, you know, these are the vows we're going to use and this is what they mean. And this is why we're going to use them. So that's kind of. Well, before we get into the topic, I want to talk about the guest. What, you know, introduce yourself a little bit. What do you do? (laughs) Talk about your ministry. You've got a podcast. I mean, there's, there's a lot behind this, the Shinar squirrel. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. I've been uh, a pastor of uh, Parkside Baptist church for 15 years until unfortunately we were forced due to economic necessity to close the church um, in a very small town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, matter of fact, I had the, the privilege of uh, meeting Ian Murray a few years ago mm-hmm. and I was introduced to him as this is my friend, Gene, who pastors in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, uh, it's a, it's a, little town of 800 people and uh this was the only reformed church in the town and like every reformed church we were kind of small mm-hmm. and so it uh we'd gotten down to because it's an economically depressed area we'd had people move away for work had people die 
you know, et cetera. And we had gotten down to a very small number and just couldn't pay the bills anymore. So uh, I'm no longer pastoring um, actively. I'm still doing some itinerant preaching, doing uh, the podcast and uh, uh, driving team and activity bus for the local school and mm-hmm. substitute teaching. Kind of stuff. Okay. Keeping busy there. Um, but yeah, I got a podcast called Squirrel Chatter. Yeah, I was just going to say, why don't you talk uh, about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, we, it's kind of an eclectic little, I talk about whatever I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, daily, I'm getting on uh, for the last couple of months, I guess now, I've been getting on and reading through the uh, New Testament in the new Legacy Standard Bible translation every morning. Mm-hmm. doing three four chapters every morning just oh, you do that reading. both as a like a straight up uh, podcast but also you're doing live stream on youtube right i'm live streaming it but i'm recording it and then i post it up to the podcast after sure. and i just listened mm-hmm. to psalm saturday over the weekend yep yeah i just started that that was the first one yep. and i decided i'm i'm going through the the new testament monday through friday and i thought well that's on saturday i'll just take a psalm and do a little devotional Basically, what I'm doing is sharing my own morning time with people. Yep. This is just, you know, part of my own time in the Word. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Well, we were going to get into you uh, when I reached out to you and, and said, hey, I'd like to have you on and talk with you, but I don't really have a topic. Is there something that you'd like to talk about? Um, I don't like my guests to do too much homework, so I wanted to you know, <laughs> let you uh, to, to do, uh, you know, take a pick. and. And you talked a little bit about some of that as a topic idea of yeah. devotion, being more in the word and whatnot. Right. And admittedly, that's a, a weakness of mine lately, especially with kids, you know, I homeschool and, you know, just the regular busy life kind of thing. You are not alone. No, I think and that's that why it, I thought that would be a great topic. And yeah, I think that's absolutely a, uh, absolutely a, uh, an issue with, uh, just about every Christian, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, like but where I try to like supplement is stuff like you're doing, where if I can't sit down and read the Bible, I like to uh, listen to it. I like to yeah. listen to people talk about it, listen to good sermons. I, uh, you know, I, 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 I kind of start feel like I'm starving if I go too long without anything at all. But uh, yeah, even when I was driving truck, I was listening to sermons and stuff while I'm driving you know, sermons, podcasts, yeah. Christian books. Yep. Uh, that's just all part of the trying to stay in the word yeah. um, because it is a struggle and it's easy to get busy. It's easy to be distracted. Yep. And so it's so. having, uh, and I'm doing my Monday through Friday reading. I'm doing cold. So you get me tripping over names and mm-hmm. stumbling through passages and phraseology that isn't quite, you know, familiar. Whereas when I'm preaching a passage, I've probably read through it a hundred times in the week before I preach it. So yep. it just rolls off the tongue. But when you're just picking up the Bible and let's start in chapter four and you start <laughs> reading and all of a sudden you hit a name or something. that You get uh, deep into a genealogy. Yeah, yeah something like that. Uh, yeah, I'm reading first Corinthians right now. And, uh, you know, that, that one's fairly familiar, but, mm-hmm. uh, I, I just finished John, and you think John, the Gospel of John, would be real familiar, but I hit some spots in there, that the the phraseology and the it's like, boy, I haven't read this in a long time. 
And so it's, it's interesting. Fun. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Well, where can people find that? If I, don't, I don't want to. That is uh, squirrelchatter.podbean.com. Cool. And, and honestly, if you, if you just Google squirrel chatter podcast, you'll find me. Um, in this it, whole sea of all the squirrel chatter. Podcasts the, yeah. Out there's, there. there's not a lot of squirrel chatters out there. Okay. Um, just look for the, the microphone with the golden squirrel on it. Uh, that's the, the symbol, but, uh, it's, um, it's on, uh, Google podcasts. It's on, um, uh, tune in. Um, it's waiting for approval to, to be on iTunes or you can just go to the, the squirrel chatter podbean.com website and there's rss feed there that you can plug into whatever podcatcher you're using mm-hmm. i gotta ask i've known you for years as the shinar squirrel where did that name come from okay <laughs> uh years ago i had a blog called a squirrel in babylon a pagan uh, a christian rodent in a pagan tree and uh it was this was back in the heyday of blogging mm-hmm. 10 12 years ago that's where echoes um, always started yep so I was, I was writing a podcast and, uh, the, uh, uh, Babylonian squirrel was too long for a Twitter handle <laughs> and Babylon is on the plains of Shinar, uh-huh. so Shinar squirrel. That's uh-huh. where that came from. So <laughs> well, that kind of dates you in two ways. Cause it, it, it's more recently the, the length of your name on Twitter really doesn't matter anymore. Right. Right. Yeah, I've been okay. on Twitter since 2007, 2008. That's about somewhere the same in there. Thing. Yeah, that's why I was AVG Andy, average Andy. It was like I want to get yep. as close to Andy as I can with as few characters as possible. Yep. I'm a pretty average guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's where that came from. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's funny, but yeah, it's been a long time. Now Probably I'm kind of drifting pot- away. I guess I'm just so disgusted by the political side of what Twitter's doing and stuff. I just figure uh, I've always been kind of good at, at filtering out a lot of that stuff from my own eyes and not getting too deep into the, the dirt, you know, the, the, the feuding and the nitty gritty and stuff. I've been good at staying away from that, but just the pure politics of Twitter, I, I decided, you know, just having my eyeballs on them is a revenue revenue generator for them. So I'm going to go for a way, go away for a while and, I'd give them those eyeballs. Yeah, I I stepped away for about. I I, I took uh, I actually took the Facebook app off my phone. Oh, that's a good uh, idea. And and uh, it, it's back on there now. But I took oh. it off for about six months. Um, and I I kind of stepped away from Twitter a little bit. But the one thing I did on Twitter was I went and unfollowed like a lot of the news sources I was following mm-hmm. so like the networks and newspapers and stuff that I was getting headlines off of. I unfollowed them and I put them off on a list so I can still go see what they're saying, but they're not up in my news feed all the time. That's such a underutilized feature that I've, yeah. I've liked to the list. Yeah, I did the same thing with politics. I took all the politicians I followed and I made a separate list. So right now, when I open up Twitter, I'm seeing, you know, Christian ministries and pastors and friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's much more edifying than it used to be. Yeah. Cool. But, well, um, 
So uh, we, we should probably get into the topic. This is really interesting. Just the chatter that we had beforehand and uh, the early English Reformation. You sent me a bullet pointed list and I'm just going to go kind of walk through that. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, you start off with uh, kind of the political background. Yeah, the, the, the English Reformation is different from the Continental Reformation. When you look at the Reformation on the continent, it's, it's driven by pastors and theologians getting into the Word and realizing from their study of the Word that the Pope's wrong and the Church has been teaching false doctrine, and, and, and that causes the Reformation. We see that with Luther. We see that with Calvin. These guys just, you know, they get into the word and they realize, you know, this is not what the Bible, what the church has been teaching is not what the Bible teaches. They start teaching what the Bible teaches. They get in trouble with the church, mm-hmm. you know, the, the whole history of the Reformation. That was the, the Reformation on the continent. England was a little bit different. Actually, England was a lot different. The reason was, if you look at 1517, when Martin Luther posts his 95 theses on the, the castle church door in Wittenberg, the, the, probably the least likely country to become Protestant was England. It was a very strongly Catholic country. You had Henry VIII on the throne, who was staunchly Catholic. Uh, more so than, say, France or Spain oh, yeah. or Italy. Very much so. Um, in fact, Henry VIII, after, uh, after uh, Luther um, published his 95 Theses and began to, to write and teach in Europe, Henry VIII actually wrote a pamphlet called A Defense of the Seven Sacraments, which was counter-Luther. Because Luther said, you know, there's really only two biblical sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. All mm-hmm. these other sacraments that the church teaches, you know, they're real, but they're not sacraments. And the, but Henry VIII, the king of England, actually wrote a pamphlet against Luther. And it's for that reason that the Pope gave Henry the title Defender of the Faith. Oh, good. Which is a title that the crown of England still carries. I was just going to say that. Yeah, they're yeah. still. And that's where it came from was an anti-Luther pamphlet that Henry VIII wrote. So this was not a place you would think would become Protestant. But if you go back just, you know, almost 50, 60 years before the Protestant Reformation started, you had a huge dynastic struggle in England. You had the, what we know of as the Wars of the Roses. They didn't call it the Wars of the Roses then. I don't think they called it the Wars of the Roses until about 100 years ago. The historians have to put cool names on things. But uh, Wars of the Roses, because you had the, the Houses of Lancaster and York fighting over the throne of England for about 30 years, fighting back and forth. And the reason they were fighting was that, that uh, King Edward III had had five sons. And he created five dukedoms, five duchies in England for his five sons. Prior to that, the highest rank of nobility below the king was an earldom. He created these duchies, so he created like this, this super earl mm-hmm. guy. And so uh, he had five sons, Edward, the Black Prince, who uh, became Duke of Cornwall. 
Lionel became Duke of Clarence. John became uh, Duke of Lancaster. Edmund became Duke of York. And Thomas became Duke of Gloucester. Now, these are, that's their birth order, you know. So that's, okay. Edward was the oldest, Thomas was the youngest, and the others were in there. So the, the Plantagenet dynasty, which had begun by Henry II in 1154, became divided into five branches, each of which has a claim to the throne of England, right? We're all descended from the king. Well, Edward, the Black Prince, the Duke of Cornwall, dies before his father, actually within just a few months before his father dies. He was the Prince of Wales. He was the heir. He was going to be the next king. Very popular guy, uh, accomplished warrior. Uh, you know, he was he was a guy. He was he was trained to be king. He would have been a good one, um, but he dies. He actually dies in a war in Spain. Yeah, which you know, what's the Prince of England doing in Spain? His uncle John of Gaunt, John uh, Duke of Lancaster, had actually become uh, King of Castile in Spain. Okay. All of these British, all of these European royal families are so intermarried that it's mm -hmm. it's really kind of hard to keep track of, and we don't want to get off into it's those deep weeds. For conspiracy theory, yeah, too. it is all sorts of stuff. No, uh, uh, we'll talk about that some other time. Remind me, there was, there was a book that came out about fifteen years ago about how uh, um, this guy laid out his case that uh, Prince Charles, Prince of Wales was the Antichrist and he had his oh, whole, really? yeah it's it's hilarious. It's called The Antichrist and a Cup of Tea was the <laughs> name of the book. Uh so completely different but it's full of conspiracy theories. It's all, you know mm -hmm. it's got every everybody everybody in their world everybody in the world, all of these secret organizations all answer to the Queen. And it's, it was pretty funny. Anyway, Edward dies and uh um, then a couple of months later in, uh, 1377, Edward III dies, the King of England. And the question of who's going to sit next on the throne of England is the very heart of the Wars of the Roses. So Richard II, who was Edward, Edward's, uh, he's the son of Edward the Black Prince. So yeah. he's actually the next in line because you got the the oldest son of the oldest son sure. becomes the next in line. So Edward uh, Richard becomes uh, king at the age of 10. He's, he's a little boy. Well, he grew up into a, a fairly tyrannical ruler. And he angered his barons. So his barons then turned to Henry Bolingbroke, who was the son of John, Duke of Lancaster, the uncle of Richard II. Okay. And Richard had actually exiled Henry to France because he was worried about a dynastic struggle. He was trying to get the next claimant to the throne mm -hmm. far away and had exiled him and seized all of his family property and given the title of Duke of Lancaster to somebody else. So they turned to Henry. You know, and, and he comes back from France and he rallies around him all the men who are not happy with 
with Richard and he ends up uh, besieging Richard in Flint Castle in Wales. He surrounds Richard with his army. Richard surrenders under the promise that he would abdicate the throne to Henry and that he would, and Henry would let him live. Okay. So Henry, after he became king, actually had Richard starve to death in prison. These are not nice guys. No. <laughs> and none of them are nice guys. It's like, you know, it, it's one of those. You know, it's like one, like watching a soap opera where everybody's a bad guy, and you're like, who do I cheer for in all of this? Well, to make a long story short, uh, Henry displaces Richard, or Henry is displaced with Richard. When he does that, the, the secession is thrown into a turmoil because now you've got, you know, primarily between the, the House of Lancaster, which are descended from Edward III's son, John, and the House of York, which is descended from Edward III's son, Edmund. So these two houses, the other houses have kind of faded away. Um, one of them, they've actually intermarried a little bit. So the House of York thinks that they have a stronger claim because they're actually descended from two of Edward II's sons. Okay. Or Edward III's sons. So, it, you know, it gets really complicated. But the, the, from that point on, there's a series of rebellions led by whichever house isn't in power. So if there's a Yorkist king on the throne, the Lancastrians are leading a rebellion. If there's a Lancastrian king on the throne, the Yorkists are leading a rebellion. And this goes back and forth for like 30 years. So Henry the Henry the Fourth becomes the first Lancastrian king. This is Henry Bolingbroke, the son of, of John, Duke of Lancaster. So Henry becomes Henry the Fourth becomes the first Lancastrian king. He's followed by Henry V, you know, uh, the, 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 the great uh, Henry V who won the, you know, basically beat the pants off France at the Battle of Agincourt. <laughs> you know, uh, well, what was the name of the actor that played him in that great movie in the 80s? I can, yeah, I, I, I can know I'm my, I, yeah, I know my, uh, uh, my brain's going, I'm getting old because I can't remember people's names anymore. <laughs> Um, I've been like that since my twenties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Henry V, you know, a great Shakespearean play, and and uh, uh -huh. he was this great great hero. He was he was Henry the the fourth son. Uh, son. Well, then Henry dies, and he his uh, son Henry the sixth ends up being both a simpleton, and he wasn't all that bright, and he was insane. So you have a a, a crazy idiot on the throne of England. So Henry VI then, after several years of war, is on, overthrown by the Yorkist king, Edward IV. Now, Edward had to deal with a revolt that was then led by the Earl of Warwick. Warwick. Now, Warwick was considered the kingmaker because it was Warwick siding with Edward VI that let him beat Henry the, the, the or Henry VI. Edward IV, Henry VI. They've all got yeah. numbers after their names. So the Earl of Warwick then revolts against Edward, and Edward's brother George, who happens to be the Earl of Warwick's son-in-law, supports Warwick over Edward in the revolt. Well, after defeating Warwick, Edward would forgive George, but then George would continue to work against Edward, and eventually Edward finally had him executed in 1478. So you've got brothers fighting brothers over the throne. And well, 
Edward dies in 1483. Okay. And he leaves his brother Richard as protector for his 12-year-old son and heir, Prince Edward. Well, Richard seizes the throne, becomes Richard III. Now, most likely, everybody paints him as this great villain who seized the throne out of some sort of power lust. But most likely, he seized the throne in an act of self-preservation. Because there were plots being made against him by the Woodvilles, who was the family of Edward IV's widow, Elizabeth Woodville. Okay. So, so she was the, the, the mother of Edward V. The, one of the two princes in the tower. Okay. The, the princes in the towers were, were Edward and his little brother, Richard. Um, and, and Richard had been named as protector for King Edward. Well, because he was just a little kid. So Richard was going to rule England while he raised his, his nephew to be king. But Elizabeth and the Woodvilles had all sorts of other ideas, and they definitely did not want, they wanted all that power for themselves. They didn't want Richard to have that power. So they were plotting against him, and that's kind of why he ends up seizing power. Um, I think it really was self, self-preservation. But the Woodvilles then throw their influence and power and alliance behind Henry Tudor, who is the next Lancastrian heir. Okay. And Henry Tudor comes over, lands in Wales, raises an army, meets Richard III on the battle on the battlefield, and Richard's killed. And Henry becomes Henry VII, King of England. This is Henry VIII's dad. Okay? So Henry VIII is raised with the idea that he needs to have an heir. Now, now Henry VII marries the daughter of Edward IV. And in doing so, he unites the Lancastrian and the Yorkish families. Uh He's a Lancastrian. Elizabeth is the daughter of the Yorkist king. So he, they they marry and and this unites those families. So Henry VIII, is actually descended from both the Lancastrian and York lines. So this ends the War of the Roses. Finally, some some resolution to this. Some resolution there, but Henry, you know, this dynastic struggle has just ended a generation before he comes up, and his dad has trained him. Now, and, and actually, Henry VIII was not supposed to be king. He had an older brother named Arthur. Arthur was supposed to be king. So Henry actually wasn't trained to be king, but he had watched his older brother die. So now he's really understanding the need for an heir. So that's the political background behind the whole English Reformation. And so we'll leave Henry on the throne needing an heir. And, and understanding the need for the air. Then we have a theological background behind the whole thing, which is the Reformation off the continent, mm-hmm. really beginning with John Wycliffe. Um, John Wycliffe was actually a contemporary of Edward III's. Okay. He was one of Edward III's chaplains. Oh, wow. 
So, I mean, this is all tied together. Uh-huh. The politics and the religion are so side by side in England. It's really not funny or it's amusing. But when he worked for Edward III as one of his chaplains, he argued before Parliament that the Pope had no authority over the English government nor the English uh, English uh, um, church. So th- these are not new ideas. Wycliffe called the Pope the Antichrist. He taught that Scripture alone was the sole criterion of doctrine. Yeah. This is all sounding real familiar. It sounds isn't it? like Luther. Yeah. He taught that there was no church council that had the authority to add to what the Bible taught. He denied transubstantiation. He called it a religious superstition. So he denies the mass, which is the heart of the entire Mm -hmm. popish system. He believed that the English people needed to have a Bible in English. So he translated the Latin Vulgate into English. And published it. Uh oh. So this is the first English translation of the Bible. It's not from the Greek and Hebrew, it's from the Latin, but it's now in the English language. And as you can imagine, his teachings kind of angered the Pope and angered the Roman Catholic hierarchy. And then he dies, natural death, December 31st, 1384. 133 years before Luther nails his 95 theses to the wall mm-hmm. in Wittenberg. Well, this brings us to John Huss way over in Bohemia. How does this tie to England? Well, Anne of Luxembourg, the sister of the king of Bohemia, married King Richard II of England. Again, it's all tied together, right? As a result, there were close ties established between England and Bohemia, and students from Bohemia traveled to Oxford to study. Okay. And there they're exposed to the writings of John Wycliffe. And they bring the writings of John Wycliffe back to Prague. Well, this is before printing, right? Mm -hmm. There's a student in Prague, a theology student, and he starts earning money by copying by hand for libraries, for professors, for students, for anybody who wanted a copy. He's copying Wycliffe's writings by hand. His name is John Huss. He's a theology student. He's training to be a pastor. Now, through this, he becomes convinced of the truth of Wycliffe's writings. And uh, he ends up writing a... a, Huss preached against the corruption and immorality of the Roman Church. He spoke against indulgences. He denied the authority of the Pope. Again, it's Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. He's saying the same stuff Martin Luther would say a hundred years later, he preached that salvation was only by faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he writes a book called The Church. Uh, actually, De Ecclesia is, is the, the book. And it's full of praise for and ideas he got from 
John Wycliffe. Okay, so this English reformer has influenced this guy in Bohemia. Well, Huss is convicted of, uh, um, he's condemned as a heretic, convicted as a heretic and condemned to die in a church council in 1415. And this same council condemns Wycliffe, who's already dead. He's been dead for 30 years. They convict Wycliffe of being a heretic as well. So they have John Huss burnt at the stake and his mm -hmm. ashes thrown into the Rhine. And they dug up Wycliffe in England, burned his body, and threw his ashes into the River Swift. Which brings us to Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. You know, 1517, he nails his 95 theses to the, to, to the church door. And his primary arguments were against indulgences. That was what he was upset about. Tetzel. You know, Tetzel. Yep. Yeah. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from Purgatory Springs. You know, a great, he could have sold you used cars. You know? <laughs> Well, in 1519, when, when uh, Luther was debating, uh, was it Johannes Eck? I forget his first name. Eck is the, the guy. He's debating a Roman Catholic. And the Roman Catholic accuses Luther of being a Hussite. Luther's a what? A what, yeah. Well, Luther was trained in theology, but they weren't teaching the writings of Huss. He had been condemned as a heretic 100 years before. Right. You know? So he goes. And overnight, quickly researches Huss. Comes back in the next day and says, you know, Huss was right about a lot of this stuff. <laughs> right? So now Luther has affirmed the writings of a heretic. 1521, you got the Diet of Worms. Luther's condemned as a heretic. You know, the famous here I stand, I can do no other speech. Mm -hmm. And the Protestant Reformation is well on its way. Mm -hmm. Right, it's begun in earnest. So that's that's kind of you know that's the theological background behind all of this, and that's the theological background that this guy named Thomas Cranmer falls into. He's born in 1489 in Nottingham. I don't think he had anything to do with the Robin Hood legends or anything like that. But he's born into a he's born to a a, a squire of a, a, a very minor nobility. Okay. Um, so he's not a not quite a commoner, but he's not real high up on the ladder. Mm -hmm. And as a younger son, he's not going to receive any inheritance from his father. So he and his other brother, his younger brother, are enrolled in Cambridge to train as priests. Okay. So in 1510, 19-year-old Thomas Cranmer enrolls in Jesus College, Cambridge. <clears throat> well, he soon loses his place in Cambridge because he falls in love with and marries the daughter of a local innkeeper. And you can't be a priest and be married. Right. But she dies in childbirth. She and she and the and child the die, his first child, you know, so it's very tragic. But now he's no longer married. He re-enters Cambridge and continues his training as a as a priest. And while he's training at Cambridge, he ends up hanging out at the White Horse Inn. Okay. 
which was a tavern in Cambridge, right? Now, here are the guy. Here's some of the guys. It's it's basically a group of students at Cambridge who get together to read and discuss the writings of Martin Luther. So it's either a book club or a small group Bible study or kind of both. Mm-hmm. The guys you have at the White Horse Inn are uh, uh, Nicholas Ridley, Miles Coverdell, Thomas Cranmer. Some of these names are going to be, you know, uh, William Tyndale, mm-hmm. Hugh Latimer. These are guys that are involved in this discussion group that's meeting in this tavern in Cambridge. These guys are all going to become the, you know, Ridley is the theologian of the English Reformation. Hugh Latimer is the premier preacher of the English Reformation. Thomas Cranmer is going to be the architect of the English Reformation. Tyndale. Translates the Bible. Yeah. Big reformer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coverdale finishes Tyndale's. So now I understand where Michael Horton and the gang get their you get their name for their, their name podcast. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this this tavern, this Bible study or book club or whatever you want to call it that take took place at this tavern is instrumental in not only the thinking of these men, but their relationship to each other. These guys all know each other. So as they get out of college and they start moving through their various parts of England, they're staying in contact and they're all kind of thinking along the same way, right? So now we get back to, to Henry VIII, the need of an heir. Uh, Remember I said Henry VIII had a, an older brother, Arthur. Mm-hmm. And shortly before he died, about two years before he died, they married Arthur to a Spanish princess named Catherine. Catherine of Aragorn. Or Aragon. Aragorn's a character from The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Catherine of Aragon. They got married. Um, to, and this was a dynastic move by Henry VIII to tie his family to Henry, a powerful monarchy in Spain. Henry the Seventh? No, Henry the Eighth. Oh yeah, Henry the Seventh to tie tie his family to the, the to the Spanish monarchy. Mm-hmm. So Arthur, Henry the Eighth's older brother, marries Catherine. Well, he gets tuberculosis and dies. So Henry the Seventh decides Catherine will marry Henry the Eighth. Okay. Or Prince Henry, because he's not king yet. So he has to go to the Pope and he has to get a dispensation for this because this is Henry's brother's wife. So he gets a Popal dispensation to, to marry. They don't have, they don't have like a Leverite marriage kind of thing. No, no, they didn't have the Leverite marriage thing. Um, And in fact, that actually comes into, to uh, some of the stuff that Cranmer wrote about, uh, uh, to uh, end up annulling the marriage. Okay. Um, uh, so anyway, Henry and Catherine get married. And Catherine gives Henry one daughter and a lot of sons who die two, three months old, mm. plus a lot of miscarriages. 
There's just, he's not producing a male heir. And remember that the, the need for a male heir has been drilled into him. Mm-hmm. And he remembers the Wars of the Roses. Obviously, he didn't live through them, but he's been taught. You know, sure. this is this is important, son. Make sure you have an heir. So by 1527, Henry wants his marriage to Catherine annulled. Meanwhile, Henry has become friends with Thomas Cranmer. Excuse me, Cranmer had been a. a um, they're they're roughly the same age. Cranmer had been actually Cranmer's a little bit younger, but Cranmer had been um, chaplain at a hunting lodge that Henry ended up staying at, and they hit it off. Mm-hmm. They became friends, and all through Henry's reign, probably the most loyal guy to him throughout his entire reign was this Thomas Cranmer guy. So he was very close friends with Henry. It wasn't just a political relationship. These guys were tight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that probably caused Cranmer to overlook some of Henry's excesses because this was his buddy and we all have blind spots. You know? yeah. So I think Henry was one of his. But uh, Henry ends up appointing Thomas Cranmer as England's ambassador to Rome in 1530. So. Cranmer ends up going to Rome. Then a couple of years later in, in, in 1533, I think, um, he's appointed as ambassador to uh, Charles V, Holy Roman Empire, emperor. Now, Charles V is Catherine's nephew. Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII's wife. Okay. Charles V is Catherine's nephew. Okay. And that's going to be important later. Charles then sends is now Henry sends him to Emperor Charles as an ambassador for England. Then Charles sends Thomas Cranmer to Germany as Charles's uh, investigator to learn oh. more about the Lutheran. Okay the the Lutheran uh, movement that was going on. Now, remember, Charles, this is the same Holy Roman Emperor who presided over the Diet of Worms in 1521, where Luther was condemned as a heretic. (laughs) But he wants to know more about it because obviously Lutheranism is growing. It's, you know, the territory where it's happening is at least on paper, part of Charles's realm. Mm -hmm. So he wants to know what's going on. So he sends Martin Luther, or he sends Thomas Cranmer to kind of run down what's going on with Martin Luther. Well, while he's there, Cranmer stays with a guy who is a, a, trying to find his name. He, uh, um, he's staying with a, with a guy in, in the, the area. And the guy has a daughter. And Cranmer falls in love with the daughter. Yeah, a guy Does named... She ends up being his second wife then? Ends up being his second wife, Margaret. Okay. So here's a Catholic priest working for the Catholic King of England, visiting with a bunch of Lutherans, and getting married. 
He's still this a priest a, at this point. He's still a priest. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> he's still a priest. Now, I think uh, by this point, I think in his own theology, he's become firmly reformed. Sure. But he hasn't broken with the church. He's still a priest. Um, but he, he's convinced at least enough to think that celibacy is probably wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, or, or he, or she's pretty enough to convince him that celibacy is probably wrong, which might yeah. work as well. So, so he gets married while he's in Germany. Well, then he gets called back to England because Henry wants him to become Archbishop of Canterbury, okay. the highest bishopric in England. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it's, it, he's like, what am I going to do? I'm married. I'm disqualified. If they find out I'm married, you know, I'm going to lose out on this job. So he actually, he sends his wife back to England. But he stays in Germany. Hoping that Henry will pick somebody else. Okay. So that he doesn't have to be that public, you know. Um, it's one of those things. He's he's not looking forward to that Senate confirmation hearing with the, the you know, <laughs> and uh, so. But on March thirtieth, fifteen thirty three, he becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. He can't turn Henry down. Henry's insistent, and so he's forced for a time to hide his marriage. Um, there are stories of. Margaret traveling in a trunk as Thomas moved around England. Mm-hmm. She was traveling in the luggage, <laughs> literally, that there was a trunk built for her with cushions and a seat and everything that she rode in the carriage in so that nobody would know that, you know, she was shipped with the bags. Wow. You know, he's riding in the carriage. She's in the, the baggage wagon in a trunk. And that just, oh yeah, I'm sure it had this side up, you know? <laughs> and <that's, laughs> and uh, so these are the stories that we hear about this. Well, now he's Archbishop of Canterbury. Henry needs an heir. Henry has decided that, you know, he needs an heir and, and Catherine's not going to give one. And at the same time, he's also developed the hots for Anne Boleyn. So the Henry Henry VIII's wife number two. Mm-hmm. So Cranmer is the guy who ends up writing. You know, the, they they first appeal to the Pope, and the Pope turns them down. And the reason the Pope turns them down is because Catherine is the aunt of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles. You Just see, too much. Yeah, there's all of these ties together. Charles had just the year before actually sacked Rome and held the Pope prisoner. Okay. For ransom. Yeah. The Pope doesn't want any trouble (laughs) with (laughs) Charles V. Sure. And Charles V is a lot closer to Rome than Henry is in England. Uh So, and Charles V does not want his aunt Deposed as Queen of England. 
because having your aunt as Queen of England is a pretty big political power play. So Charles doesn't want to lose that political pull over England, and the Pope doesn't want to have Charles's army back in Rome like he was last mm. year. So he denies Henry's petition to annul the wedding. And that's when Henry and Cranmer and a couple of other of Henry's advisors come up with this idea of breaking away from England. And Cranmer is tasked with coming up with the theological justification for it. So when the, the when England breaks away from Rome, it's purely for political reasons. But but Cranmer's got his own reason. Cranmer has his own agenda. Cranmer is reformed. Now under Henry, Cranmer was never really able to deeply reform the church. He could tweak a few things here and there, but Henry was Catholic. Sure. Henry was still Catholic. Henry was a popeless Catholic, but he was Catholic. And so Cranmer wasn't allowed the freedom to really push some of these reforms. Mm -hmm. But then when Henry dies, and it's 1547 when Henry dies, so it's about 17 years after all of this takes place. Henry VIII dies, uh, 17 years and five wives later. <laughs> he was a busy man. Henry VIII dies. Nine-year-old Edward VI becomes king. Uh -huh. Now, Jane Seymour, or, who was Edward's mother, Henry VIII's third wife, I think, had died after his birth. Okay. Edward was the only boy child Henry had. He ended up having three children that lived to adulthood. Mary, who was the daughter of, of Catherine of Aragon. Okay. Elizabeth, who was the daughter of Anne Boleyn. And Edward, who was the son of Jane Seymour. Okay. So these are the children of Henry VIII, right? All three of them are going to sit on the throne. Mm -hmm. So Edward dies. No heir. Or no, no. <laughs> Edward. Henry dies. Henry dies. Henry dies. And his his mother had died shortly after he Mark. now Catherine Parr, who was Henry VIII's last wife, who was the only wife to survive him, happened to be Thomas Cranmer's niece. Okay. She is thoroughly reformed. As Henry's wife. She oversaw the education of Edward okay. and Elizabeth. Now, Mary's already an adult. Okay. Because Mary was older than the other two because she's from the first wife. That's starting to make know. some sense here. Right. So Mary's already an adult. And <clears throat> but, you know, so Catherine Parr is teaching Edward and Elizabeth, and they're, you know, she's reformed. Mm-hmm. She's hiring reform tutors mm -hmm. to oversee their education. Her uncle is the Archbishop of Canterbury, and she's got his support. And then the Regency Council that Edward the or that Henry the Eighth had had uh, appointed to oversee the kingdom while Edward was a, was a child 
was dominated by Protestants, okay. including Thomas Cranmer. So after Henry dies, Cranmer really begins to, to move into um, reforming the church for sure. real. Uh-huh. And the first thing he does within six months of Henry VIII's death, he publishes a book of homilies, a book of sermons. Mm-hmm. Because remember, all of your churches in England while technically Protestant, you know, or nominally Protestant, mm-hmm. they're all usually led by Catholic priests. Now, unlike continental Europe, most of your clergy in England was very educated. Because Cambridge and Oxford, they were training yep. these guys, you know. Yep. Um, whereas on the continent, most of your priesthood was, was political appointees or, you know. Sure. Or or bought their bought their church for uh, you know out of some sort of corruption thing for the power and influence and stuff or you know, some mm-hmm. sort of nepotism or you know all sorts of messes that were going on. But in England, they were fairly articulate and fairly well educated, but they weren't Protestant. <laughs> so Cranmer wrote a book of sermons and sent them out to all the churches and said, here, read these to your congregation. Mm. And of course, the, the Roman Catholic... That, that link I sent you comes in. Yes, it was okay. exactly about that. I haven't listened to that, but yeah, that, that's exactly so, what that yeah, book is about. Yeah, you sent me a link. Um, these are both going to be in the additional resources when we do the uh, final episode here, but um, you sent me a teaching by Steve Lawson on Thomas Cranmer. Yeah. And... Um, and then I did a quick search. I thought I've been listening to five minutes in church history with Stephen Nichols for years. Yeah, it's great. Stuff. There's almost certainly got to be something in there about <laughs> Cranmer. And I'm sure I've listened and totally forgotten. Yeah. And I uh, did a quick search and it came across an episode called the Edwardian homilies. Yeah. Where he talks about that. Yeah. And see, Edward was king. That's why they're called yep. the Edwardian homilies. Yep. So, yeah. So Cranmer wrote these and sent them out to, and this is so in 1448. He's at, at this time, he's in the Regency overseeing Edward. Edward's still a child. He, yeah. He's Edward's, Edward's nine years old. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and so he's sending out, you know, he sends out, this is, this is like six months after Edward becomes King. He sends out this book of sermons. Mm-hmm. Then a year later in uh, 1549, he publishes his first book of common prayer. And this completely revamps the worship service. Okay. It's an English litur- liturgy. Oh, wow. It's not so, Latin. Not Latin. Okay. So his thing is the church services are going to be in English. And so he comes out with the book of common prayer, which is the, the liturgy. Now this, in, in, it wasn't quite sorry, reformed. Sorry, back up a little yeah. bit. What I just sorry yeah. to interrupt you. What what year are we talking about? We're talking uh, uh, 15, um, 1549 is when the okay. first prayer book was. So we're getting into maybe the second generation after Luther. Yeah, we're we're uh, let's see. That was uh, you know fifteen so seventeen. Of, I don't know when Luther. So died, we're talking. Yeah, uh, I don't know when Luther died either. Off the top of my head, been kind of towards the end of his life. Right, but no, that was you know fifteen seventeen. Now we're fifteen forty nine, so we're thirty years later. 
Okay. So not, I mean, you know, not a full generation, but mm -hmm. we're still very much in the early reformation period. Definitely. Yeah. Not quite, um, not quite to Calvin yet. Right. And, and so Cranmer is, is very much, you know, committed to a reformed church. Luther died in 1546. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is Luther died a year before Henry, right. Henry the eighth, you know? So this is, this is the time period. Mm -hmm. And Cranmer's committed to reforming the English church, but he's kind of doing it in steps. He's put out these sermons and now he puts out this prayer book and it was kind of quasi reformed. It's, it's, it's reformed light. You know, yeah. he, he didn't go all the way. Well, there's a, a actually a revolt among the clergy about this prayer book. And Cranmer, with the support of Parliament, actually puts down this revolt. And there are priests removed from churches and all sorts of stuff like that that happened. Mm. And, and it actually cements Cranmer's control over the Church of England. So in 1552, he publishes a really reformed prayer book. Okay. It doesn't mention priests. It talks of ministers. Is this the, the one you showed me before we recorded? No, the one Again I have there? here is the one I have here is, is, the, is the 1662, which is the, the current one. Okay. 1662 was when the monarchy was restored after Oliver Cromwell Cromwell had uh, um you know, you had the, the Parliament had, had killed the king and then Cromwell dies and Parliament brings the king's son back in and reestablishes okay. the monarchy. Um and he reestablished the Church of England and did did away with all the Puritan reforms that Cromwell and his buddies had brought in. And one of the things he did was he brought back the prayer book. The 1662 is very much like the prayer book that uh, Elizabeth I instituted okay. when she took the throne, now which was... We're at yeah. about an hour, and um, I don't want to quit yet. This is yeah, interesting. no, no, we're fine. Just keep recording. You can yeah, edit however you want. Me. We can't go too long, because yeah. then the file just gets unwieldy and... Yeah, and we um, gotta have dinner and <laughs> yeah, that too. But um, um, I'm I'm learning stuff. I mean, I recognize a lot of these names, but I've it's kind of like it's been in the background before, and so you're connecting the uh, dots. you're connecting dots. And I was thinking the whole time that what I need as I'm listening to you is one of those boards that you see with the guy who's like trying to figure out the who's yarn. The, yeah, the yeah yarn board. Like who's the serial killer kind of guy? You know <laughs> that kind of thing. And like. Got the, with all got these, the map and the yarn to the right. photos. Well, when the, you're yeah. talking about this guy married the daughter of this king and this other, you know, and you know the, yeah. and the, how the, that the Spanish guy, history, yeah. Spanish princess and the Holy Roman princess, and uh, you know, it's like I definitely need a yarn board to keep this all straight. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I do recognize, of course, um, well Henry the Eighth is uh, obviously a very famous king, you know, that right when that is central to all of this, but then Mary and, and Elizabeth and now Edward, um, where you're putting this kind of yeah. the links together. I didn't know that these were all siblings of each other. Yeah. They're, they're all half siblings. Half each siblings. of them had a different mother. Yeah. Now I know. So it's Edward and then 
Edward, does Edward die? Is that how Mary comes Yeah, up? Edward dies at age 17. Oh, so he doesn't even make it past the Regency. He doesn't make it past, yeah, he doesn't make it past the Regency. And this is, now he was, he was, he was very reformed. Edward yeah. was. And Edward was supporting this. Yeah. So um, Mary even follows though, and she's absolutely not. But Mary follows and she is rabidly Catholic. She doesn't. She has not forgotten that Thomas Cranmer is the guy mm-hmm. who uh, Mary is, basically is had her nickname is Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary, because of the the Marian martyrs, she killed. Um. Oh gosh, there were more than three hundred men and women were executed under her, um, including Latimer and Ridley. Mm-hmm. And then a few uh, months later, White Horse Inn names. Yeah, those White Horse Inn names. Now, the interesting thing is Henry VIII was responsible for the execution of William Tyndale. He was he was convicted as a heretic for translating the Bible into English. Mm -hmm. Henry VIII is the guy who signed his death warrant. A few years later, Henry VIII is the guy who signs the proclamation and authorizes the printing of the great Bible, which was mostly Tyndale's work. Mm-hmm. And he authorized the printing of the great Bible and, and a Bible was chained to every pulpit in England under the same guy who had Tyndale executed. And that's, you know, so, so you say uh, the great Bible, this would be what, we colloquially know <laughs> they called it the great they called it the great bible because it was so large yeah, but we would is this what we would consider the tyndale bible we would call it the yeah the tyndale bible okay the tyndale bible new tyndale new testament which all tyndale did was the new testament and parts of the old testament okay and then miles coverdell another name from the white horse inn yep. he did the psalms and a lot of the old testament and then there's a third translator who okay. corrected a lot of Coverdell's mistakes. Tyndale was, in, was a language specialist. Sure. Coverdell, not so much. Um, and, but he completed a lot of Tyndale's work. Okay. When, when Tyndale was arrested, Coverdale was the guy who grabbed Tyndale's work and got it out of there so that they didn't burn all of Tyndale's notes. Okay. And he finished the Psalms. As a matter of fact, in, in uh, Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, in the psalm readings, he uses Coverdell's okay. translations of the psalms. So even even today in the Church of England, they're reading Miles Coverdell's translation of the psalms because that's still the the official. The 1662 is still the official liturgy of the Church of England. Okay. And when you look at the amount of scripture that's read, and the the prayers that Cranmer wrote that are recited. And it's like, do people still get saved in the Church of England? They certainly can, because they're hearing the word, mm-hmm. even though the Church of England has long since apostatized. Yep. They're still reading the Bible. You're get, you actually hear more, this is really sad, but you hear more scripture read in a Church of England service where they don't believe the Bible than you do in most Baptist churches. Oh, that's sad. They're reading the scripture because it's in the Book of Common Prayer, 
which goes back to Thomas Cranmer. Now, we do have Bible-believing Anglicans still mm-hmm. in the world. A lot of them are in Not, Africa now. Right. Africa is a big one. But you also have, um, there's, a, there's a, a conservative Anglican movement going on in uh, Australia. Okay. Now, they're resisting a lot of the stuff that's coming out of the Archbishop of Canterbury, mm-hmm. you know, who's the head of the Church of England. Actually, the Queen is the head of the Church of England. He is the chief elite, okay. the top, top uh, minister. Who is that now? Who's the? You know, I don't know his name. I'd have to, I'm say, sure I some, if a, I looked it up, I would know, um, I would I'll recognize the Search here quick. Yeah. But, uh, but in, in North America, of course we have the Episcopal church, mm-hmm. which is the official church of England, but we also have the ACNA, the Anglican church in North America. The Anglican church in North America are the conservative Bible believing Anglicans in North America. And so I've got a friend that's a an Anglican priest down in uh, Australia, yeah. strong uh, evangelical. Actually, uh, I met him. I don't. I only know him online. I've never met him in person, but I got to know him through James White. Okay, he's friends with James White. Um, there's also um, I, I've I, there's several uh, Anglican Church in North America ministers I follow on Twitter and listen to their podcasts and stuff. Cause these guys believe the Bible mm-hmm. and it's good stuff. Okay. The, I, I thought it was somebody I, whose name I'd recognize, yeah. but it's uh, Justin Welby. I don't think I've ever Justin heard. Justin Welby. Yes. Yeah. I knew uh, that. Rowan Williams before him. Yeah. Rowan Williams was like practically a Druid. Okay. He was like this new age guy. Um, Welby's just a political, political and theological liberal. Uh, I'm looking at on, uh, Wikipedia going back to 1896. And yeah. to be honest, I don't recognize any of these names. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you, unless you're Anglican or you closely follow Anglicanism, you're not going to recognize okay. these names. Um, okay. Well, um, why don't we quickly kind of wrap up with that? Um, Mary and yeah. then into Elizabeth. Yeah. So Mary, um, she ends up, she's rabidly Catholic and hates Cranmer, hates Protestantism, blames Cranmer and Protestantism for all of the troubles she has suffered in her life. And so she becomes queen in uh, 1555. And she's only queen for three years. In those three years, she has over 300 men and women burned at the stake. This is why she's called Bloody Mary. Now, prior to Mary, there had been a lot of resistance against reforming the church because the English people were Catholic. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't a widespread bunch of people going, yeah, let's be Protestant. They were Catholic, and they, of course, they hadn't been taught doctrine or anything because they were Catholic. So they were, you know, trying to, you know, they were very happy. Um, when Edward died, he named Lady Jane Grey as his heir, Protestant young lady. She's queen, uh, the nine-day queen. Okay. She only was the queen for nine days. Mary gets installed as queen because there was a huge uprising among the English people 
they wanted Henry VIII's daughter. They didn't want some obscure cousin. Okay. You know? Um, and uh, so, so Jane Grey, you know, ends up in the tower and eventually ends up being beheaded by Mary. She wasn't burnt. She was beheaded. But, you know, for, for treason, basically. But some of the, some of the writings we have of, of uh, Jane Grey, phenomenally well-taught Protestant, theologically acute. There are, there are accounts of, because Mary kept sending priests in to convert her. You know, <laughs> the, these priests kept coming in. And so there's, there's, we have accounts of her discussions with these priests and she knew her stuff. Cool. And she's like 15 years old. Oh, wow. And it's like, our youth groups are failing. Yeah. You know, this was a 15 year old girl who knew her Bible and knew her theology and was able to argue with Catholic priests. You know, she would have been a great queen, mm -hmm. but the people weren't, you know, they, they wanted the daughter of Henry the eighth. They wanted a legitimate heir from the Royal family. So Mary comes in and she starts killing people left and right and reinstating the Catholic church, but doing it in such a militant See, during the entire reform under Henry VIII and under Edward the, the Sixth, no Catholics were executed. Well, they, they weren't were, killing people. They, the way you're describing it is they, they were kind of almost sneaking it in. See. Yeah, they were trying to, to slowly push reforms. Mm -hmm. You know, that was Cramer's idea is like, we don't, we don't want a revolution. Right. But we want to teach the people. And so that was, that was why he sent out the homilies. Mm -hmm. Let's start teaching them reform theology. That's why he started... With the prayer book, let's teach them reform theology through the liturgy and through the, you know, so trying to train up the people so that they would understand theology. Yep. But Mary comes in, she's just absolutely militant and she's killing people, right? Well, the, the three, three of the big names in the English Reformation on the church side are Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cranmer. They all get imprisoned together to Tower of London. Then Latimer and Ridley get taken out, and they're burnt at the stake in Oxford. And Cranmer, at this time, he's 66 years old. He's not a, not a young man. He's made to stand on the battlements of the castle and watch them being burned in the street. And they're working on him. Now he's alone. He doesn't have anybody in his jail cell or anything like that. He's alone. And they're working on him. Well, basically, they promise him if he recants, he'll live. And he caved under the pressure. Okay. And he wrote a recantation of his Protestant faith. Well, it, it was done under duress. Mm -hmm. And like I said, he was alone. You know, we need... This like, don't not forsake the gathering together, you know, the, the, the gathering of the saints, because we need each other. Yeah. And we need that support. So he was isolated and they were working on him hard and he caved. Mm -hmm. You know, he just watched two of his best friends get burned to death. Yeah. You know, you know, what kind of PTSD are we talking here? So he writes a recantation and they read it and they're like, you know, they said, we want you to, you're going to stand up in the church. And you're going to recant publicly. 
And, you know, but we want you to write what you're going to say. So he wrote it down. They read it. They said, cool. You know, whole Roman Catholic procession. There's a mass celebrated everything. And they, they get uh, Cranmer up in the pulpit. And he stands up there and he calls the Pope an antichrist and he recants his recantation. <laughs> and he's, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, just, he, he just, uh, there's a biography that uh, J.C. Ryle wrote. Okay. And, and his, I don't have it here with me, but he describes the reaction of all of these Catholic bigwigs and government bigwigs that are ready to hear Archbishop Cranmer renounce his faith. Mm-hmm. And he got up there and he ran out of course they end up yanking him out of the pulpit. And it was, it was after Cranmer and after Ridley and Latimer and after Cranmer that they started cutting the tongues out before uh-huh. they'd burn them at the stake because mm-hmm. they didn't want him to talk because they were all professing Christ. Well, when they burnt Cranmer at the stake and they burned him on the exact same spot where Ridley and Latimer were burnt. There in Oxford, there's a there's an X out in the middle of the street. I haven't been there, but that's one of my goals to go visit Oxford and see that. They're burning him at the stake. He burnt his hand first. He held his hand into the fire, the hand that had ripped the recantation. Ah, uh-huh. said something about you know I'm burning my hand that offended me by writing against my heart. <laughs> so I, so he stood. You know, he caved for a while, mm-hmm. but when it came down to it, he stood. Yeah. Well, Mary ends up dying. She, uh, she thought she was pregnant and everybody believes now she had stomach cancer. Okay. Um, so she ends up dying. She's only queen for, you know, like I said, three years. Mm-hmm. Um, bloody three years, obviously bloody Mary is a, yep. you know, she's, she's not listed in the top five monarchs of England by any means. By anybody. Mm-hmm. But now Elizabeth becomes king, Elizabeth or queen, Elizabeth I. And she has a long reign. She's Protestant. Mm-hmm. Now, the English people, having seen the excesses of Mary, they're kind of, you know, I think we're Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we didn't, we didn't like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So Elizabeth comes well, isn't in. Isn't that or kind she, of the tale of church history, though? I mean, yeah. that, that, that uh, persecution ends up backfiring. Yeah. Uh, but the one thing that now Elizabeth outlaws Roman Catholicism. Um, Henry and, and Edward hadn't outlawed Roman Catholicism. They just, the Church of England is not Catholic. But Elizabeth outlaws it. You know, and, and, there were actually priests hunted down and executed and stuff under Elizabeth's reign. But when Elizabeth reinstated the Protestant church of England, she didn't quite go as far as the, the, the prayer book that we have now, the one that, that essentially is the one that Elizabeth had put in place, brought back in a lot of the Catholic elements that Cranmer had taken out. For instance, it talks about the priest, whereas Cranmer's 1552 talked about ministers. Mm-hmm. The way that uh, uh, 
the Lord's table is celebrated is much more like the mass than Cranmer's was. Um, So, you know, a lot of things like Cranmer's, you didn't kneel during communion. You stood, you know, where into the new one, yeah, I think I made it optional. Standing or kneeling as the parish decrees, you know, kind of thing. And made it an optional deal. Okay. Um, so it's, and, and then, you know, modern, modern Anglicanism became much more Catholic after the Cambridge movement in the, after World War II. There was a, a reinfusion of some Catholic doctrine and Catholic practices mainly. Um, but you go back to, to, um, during the Edwardian time, after the, the death of, of Henry VIII, Cranmer got rid of vest, vestments and everything. You know, people just stood up in their suits and breached. So when you, when you look at the, the Scottish Covenanters who, and the, the, the people that rebelled against the Church of England's imposition of the Book of Common Prayer after you know, 1662, um, those guys were protesting not Cranmer's Reformed Church, but the Reformed Church that had come after the reinstatement of the monarchy, after the English Civil War and the the, the rule of, of the Protestants and the protectorate of Oliver Cromwell. Okay. So that was, they were, they were Protestants, they were Puritans, who were rejecting the Church of England's liturgy, but they were rejecting the more Catholic liturgy of 1662, not the, the, the 1552 that Cranmer put out. So this is a 1662, which is the current one, but other than like, you know, communion and stuff like that, it's very much the, the, the prayers, the liturgy, is very much uh, in line with what Cranmer wrote. Okay, but the the it's kind a of a lot mix. of the, it's kind of a mix. So if you're reading the 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 collects, which are the short prayers, it's spelled collect, okay, O L L E C T, but it's it's a collect. It's the collected prayers of the people. Okay, it's a, it's a prayer that we are all coming together as one collected group of people to pray. These are the the kind of the heart of the the prayer book or these little collects, and this is just random. This is uh, let me just find one. Okay, this is the Sunday after Ascension Day, so there's very much a liturgical church calendar sure. involved in this. So this is the the collect for Sunday after Ascension Day, and I, I this is just uh, uh, at random here. O God, the King of glory, who hast exalted thine only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph unto thy kingdom in heaven, we beseech thee, leave us not comfortless, but send to us thine Holy Ghost to comfort us, and exalt us unto the same place whither our Savior Christ is gone before, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. Very reformed. Mm Mm-hmm. Very doctrinally solid, but the the collect is a is always a short little prayer, and it has an an exaltation of God, and then it has a 
almost an explanation of an attribute. Okay. And then it has a petition based on that particular aspect. Sure. And then it ends the, the doxological statement. Okay. And there's short little prayers, and there was one for every Sunday of the year. Huh. And so they would be read beginning on Sunday, and then they would be read at the morning and evening prayer services throughout the week. Okay. Um, the Catholic Church, I think, had like seven times of prayer during the day. Oh. That, you know, well, Cranmer came down to two. Okay. He had the morning prayer and the evening prayer. And and these were, and I didn't realize this until I, I started studying it. I used to always think that a, a prayer service was just getting together to pray. Uh-huh. In the nomenclature of the time, a prayer service was a regular church service without communion. Okay. So you had communion services. And- Okay. Which was a full service with communion. And you had prayer services, which was a full service without communion. Okay. So that was the differentiation, you know. Sure. So so they had morning prayer and evening prayer. So a morning service and an evening service. Was and that the, how the, later back, like as we get into the mid-1800s, we've got uh, Spurgeon, and he's got very famous for his morning and evening prayer devotional. Yeah, the morning uh, evening devotional. I've got a copy that. right here, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's basically the idea of you know, and and the idea that Cranmer had, and this gets back to what we were talking about when we started emailing last week. Cranmer wanted the people in the Word at the beginning and at the end of the day, and so he had a morning and an evening prayer. Now, at, at this time, people would gather at the church before they started their workday every morning. The little village church, you know, was usually within walking distance from most of the people's houses. Yeah. You'd walk to church. The the morning prayer service would take place. You'd go about your day. You'd come back to the church in the evening. You'd have the evening prayer service. You'd go home, have dinner, go to sleep. Oh, wow. So that was, you know, the 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 prayer service. So the I have used the Book of Common Prayer in my personal devotions for years. Just because there's sweet little prayers, mm-hmm. and there's got a. I don't follow the reading calendar, but each each day has a psalm reading, an Old Testament reading, and a New Testament reading. Yeah. That were read in church, and it'd be a different reading in the morning. Earlier. I was uh, a different, yeah. Uh, um, putting together, I, I homeschool my. It's going to be all four kids this year. My daughter's starting kindergarten, but my three boys and um, branching out a little bit from what I've done in the past and doing a little bit more, at least for the, the Bible portion of it, just making my own. And that's kind of what I'm doing is uh, with three boys, I'm going to have one of them read a chapter in the New Testament and one in the Old yep. Testament. And then uh, we'll do Psalm. There's 180 school days minus not quite 180 because of uh, vacations, but. Uh, usually plan for 180 and there's, you know, 150 Psalms. So I mean the Psalms and the probably I, I got through all I'll go through all the Psalms and then a few of the Proverbs by the end of the yeah. year. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a, I, I have, but, I have taught people to use the book of common prayer in their daily devotions. Had I been aware of that just, I think it was just a few weeks ago that I was putting that together for yeah. this coming school year. I probably would have just consulted that instead. And, 
obviously this was this is the 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 current book of common prayer was published in 1662 i have the 1552 electronically mm-hmm. all of these are in the public domain yeah i was just thinking that that um yeah that's it sounds like a really good additional resource to put on the on the site for this episode is uh, I'm going to dig in and find one of those. And put well, it actually, the, resources. The, the 1552, I've got a link to it. And I'll send it to you. Sure. Um, but quite often, I've actually got the Church of England's website bookmarked on my browser okay. yeah, because work. they have the daily prayer there. Mm-hmm. On my phone, I have the Church of England's daily prayer app mm-hmm. downloaded. It's free. Sure. And it has your morning and evening prayers for that day on cool. the, on the app. So, well, yeah. I will, I will get that for you or find that and put it under the additional resources for, yeah, absolutely. This is uh, episode 160. So echozoe.com slash 160. If you want to find that easily, don't want to yeah. bother with Google and uh, got a couple other links. Uh, you shared one and then that five minutes of church history. We've got Steve Lawson. So, so far, this is what I got on there is Steve Lawson that you sent me. Steve and, Nichols. Uh, Steve Nichols. Five minutes. It's a five minute podcast. Yeah. It's it's six minutes lately because he's got some minute long promo that he stacks on the <laughs> beginning. But even oh, the archives, get I wonder how in, they do yeah. that. How do they? I mean, he doesn't go back and re encode everything in his archive. So he's got some kind of automator that does that. Anyway. No, and Grace to You does the same thing because if, yeah. if you download a Grace to You sermon, it's got a current little thing from, yep. from Phil on there at the beginning. Yep. And at the end too. of it, it'll have a, an offer for a book or something. And it's like, this book offer expires October 1st. Yeah. Well, in come US October 2nd, there's going to be a different tag on there. Yep. You know, well, I noticed that because um, I, as, as kind of to help me sleep at night, I listen to sermons. I put a little earbud in with a sermon. It helps me get my mind on one thing yeah. and not on the 20 different things that are racing through my head. And uh, for a long time, I've had Phil Johnson stuff on there, but I do go back and forth. Sometimes I'll put uh, John MacArthur and, and I downloaded those files so long ago that that tag will say this offer good through June of 2012. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But the, the new ones, they have yeah. the current you download tag that same so file got, today. It'll, it'll have a current yeah. offer. So on they've it. got, they've got some sort of software that when you go to download it, it, it appends the tags at the front and back. Yeah. Something like that. And, and, and there's a, there's a close allegiance between grace to you and Ligonier. So, Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up using a lot of the same same tools. Yeah, well, it's um, I know that Steve Lawson's uh, One Passion Ministry app is very, very similar, not to the Grace to You app, but to the Grace Church app. Okay, like they're they're coming out of the same software developer. Yeah, so don't know don't know who. I haven't researched it. It's just like oh, this these work a lot the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, Gene, we're pushing, we're at like an hour and a half, which is yeah. on the long end. So I probably should wrap up there, but thanks so much. Uh, is there anything you want to uh, offer in closing? And I, I think we covered just about everything. Um, yeah. I, I, Thomas Cranmer is just an interesting guy mm-hmm. and his writings. If, if you can find his homilies, they're great. Um, I've, I actually read one in church one time. Cool. Just as a an example, I didn't claim it as mine. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, basically, you know, Thomas Cranmer's book of homilies was, you know, maybe an early docent. 
That's the um, the Nichols thing. They call them the Edwardian homilies. Edwardian homilies. They named a bastard yeah. the king at the time. Yeah. Which they, they did a lot. Yeah. Well, but, check out Squirrel Chatter. After squirrel you, Chatter. Now that you're, you're done with this episode, check out Squirrel, squirrel Chatter and go through a daily devotional with Gene here. So. Yeah. Love to have you. And thanks, Alan. Uh, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Andy. I know who you are. Uh, but yeah, no, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Uh, yeah, I, think I, we, I, I told you when I sent you my notes. And I said, we probably can go for four or five hours. Yeah. <laughs> I think we could have. Well, I, I would love to have you back to get maybe chapter two of this story. Yeah, we could we could talk about that because we got the Anglicanism under Elizabeth I. And then we have, uh, you know, the, the, the Puritan uprising, the, the Westminster Confession. There's a lot Confession. of that I'd love yeah, to chat with we you could just, about. So we could we'll, just uh, flow we'll, right we'll, into the we'll, English we'll Civil our, War. And- yeah, we'll say our proper <laughs> goodbyes. But uh I, will, I want to get that on the schedule at some point. Yeah, love to do it. Love right, to do thanks. it. Echo Zoe Radio is an outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. If you are blessed by the show, please consider offering your support. There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing the show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support EchoZoe Ministries, please visit EchoZoe.com slash support. That wraps up episode 160. Thanks for listening to EchoZoe Radio. For show notes, visit EchoZoe.com slash 160. Once again, this episode was pretty late for the month. The September episode will likely be late as well. I have to circle back on a potential guest that I was talking to earlier about maybe doing a show with, uh, but I don't have anything scheduled yet for September. So whether or not he is available will determine how quickly I can get the September show recorded and posted. But that said, Lord willing, we'll be back next month with the September episode of Echo Zoe Radio. 